thank you very much, Fair, uh, for inviting us here. We are very happy to be in the country of Henning Mankel and also in the city where uh, the bridge was filmed, if I'm not mistaken. So, And in a hotel, I was told we are staying where Lenin stayed in 1917 when he passed <laughs> Uh, so let me just in short explain how this is going to work tonight. Uh, Slava will speak about obscene masters and I will just slide uh, through uh, some other themes he's going to cover like the politics of sexuality, immigrants and racism. Um, so I'll be sort of transitioning from one theme to another with my questions. So I would like to start, Slavoj, uh, with a movie Joker, because um, some critics found that this character, the Joker, the villain of the, this movie, that, that he is um, an, an embodiment of Donald Trump. And we saw the movie, and uh, as far as we spoke about it, we do not agree with that. Um, analysis. I find that the movie Joker is much more about the obscenity of government or power today and the Joker is more or less an outcast of a certain society that can no longer keep the social bond alive. So let's start with uh, this question. Uh, okay, we have uh, the idea of Donald Trump as a joker, but I believe that you will speak about uh, him as an embodiment of a certain ob uh, obscene political figure. So, please, if... Uh, thanks. Uh, I, not surprisingly, agree with you. As I wrote somewhere, I think that it's an insult to Joker to compare him with Donald Trump, you know. Because Joker is a very interesting ethical position. The way I read him, he fully identifies with his mask. And I was, and our ultimate bourgeois dream, when you have a person which wears a certain mask of dignity and so on is, but what's the real person behind? Does he have an ugly side or he likes pornography, cheap literature, whatever? And my psychoanalytic teacher, Jacques Lacan, this was because he always appeared in public in heavily mannered way and so on. And people asked me, no, I, I asked people, sorry, I didn't know him closely, like, but how is he in private? And they told me I admired him for this. Exactly the same as in public. You don't discover a warm person behind, and Trump definitely is not this. Okay, so let me give you the basic plot I want to talk, we want to talk about today. Uh, uh, I begin with a reference, I hope you will recognize it, to Star Wars. Not such a long time ago, in a galaxy that now appears far, far away, the public space, our public space, was clearly distinguished from the obscenities of private exchanges. Politicians, journalists, and other media personalities were expected to address us with the minimum of dignity talking and acting as if the common good is their main preoccupation, avoiding vulgar expressions and references to personal intimacies. 
There were, of course, rumors about their private vices. But they remained dead. Private matters mentioned only in the yellow press. Today, however, not only we can read in the mass media about the intimate details of public personalities, populist politicians themselves often regress to shameless obscenity. Uh, one should not lose sight of what is so surprising about this rise of shameless obscenity. Uh, uh, this phenomenon was well noted and analyzed by a book that I advise you to read, probably, or maybe it is, I don't know if it's translated into Swedish, Angela Negle, Kill All Normies. What's her thesis? Traditionally, at least in our retrospective view of tradition, shameless obscenity worked as subversive, as undermining traditional domination, as depriving our leaders, masters of their false dignity. I remember from my own youth how, in the 1960s, protesting students liked to use obscene words or make obscene gestures, all that stuff, uh, to, to embarrass figures of power and, so they claimed, denounce their hypocrisy. However, what we are getting today is not the disappearance of authority, of master figures, but its forceful reappearance. We are getting something unimaginable decades ago, obscene masters. One often hears that today's cultural war is fought between traditionalists who believe in a firm set of values and postmodern relativists who consider ethical rules, sexual identities, and so on, a result of contingent power gains. But is this really the case? I claim that the ultimate postmodernist, if by postmodernism you mean cynical attitude, playing with identities, not taking things seriously, utter obscenities in public, the ultimate postmodernists are today's conservatives themselves. Once traditional authority loses its power, it is not possible to return to it. All such returns are a postmodern fake. And I think Trump is such a figure. He is not uh, in any sense an authentic conservative. His conservatism is a postmodern performance, a gigantic ego trip. Playing with traditional values mixing references to them with open obscenities, Trump is the ultimate postmodern president. It's very interesting that he's great, but he will probably fail to be the candidate. Progressive counterpoint, that's what I like about him. Bernie Sanders, did you notice how he is really, in a simple, not conservative sense, a figure of moral majority of simple values? Uh, Donald Trump so is the emblematic figure of this new type of obscene populist master. And the usual argumentation against him, that his populism, worry for the well-being of the poor ordinary people, is a fake. That his actual politics protects the interests of the rich. I think it's too simple.
to say just this. The followers of Trump do not act irrationally. They are not victims of primitive uh, ideological manipulations which make them vote, uh, vote against their interests. They are, I think, his Trump's followers, quite rational in their own terms. They vote for Trump because in the patriotic vision he's selling around, he addresses their ordinary everyday problems, safety, permanent job, and so on. When Trump was elected president, I was asked by a couple of publishers to write a book which would submit Donald Trump to a psychoanalytic criticism. And my answer was that we don't, do not need psychoanalysis to explore the pathology of Trump's success. The only thing to psychoanalyze is the irrational stupidity of the left liberal reactions to Trump. The stupidity which makes it more and more probably that Trump will be re-elected. Trump is not winning just by shamelessly bombarding us with messages which generate obscene enjoyment at how he dares to violate the elementary norms of decency. Through all his shocking vulgarities, Trump is providing his followers with a narrative which makes sense, a very limited and twisted sense, but nonetheless a sense which obviously does a better job than left liberal narrative. His shameless obscenities serve as signs of solidarity with so-called ordinary people. The message is, you see, I am the same guy as you. We are all red under our skin. And this solidarity also signals the point at which Trump's obscenity reaches its limit. Trump is not obscene when he thinks he is not. When he talks about the greatness of America, when he dismisses his opponents as enemies of the people, and so on and so on. There, he intends to be taken seriously. And his obscenities are meant precisely to point out, by contrast, the level at which he is serious. So again, don't underestimate Trump. Well, now, I'm supposed to be we rehearsed everything to interrupted <laughs> by you to ask me the next question. <laughs> yes, so um, when you talk about obscenity, I'm interested in um, how do you see the public space today? Because it seems like that this obscenity has entered the public space. Could you elaborate on? Uh, I will that? here refer to another person, a great Slovene woman philosopher, who I think is maybe already greater than me, uh, uh, Alenka Zupancic. She developed some very interesting, simple point. She says that with traditional master figure, you have something that in my psychoanalytic jargon we would have called symbolic castration. You are not allowed in your public appearance to be yourself. You have to repress your dirty private side, act with dignity, identify with your public image. This is the price you have to pay to exercise power, which is also limited in this way. But what is appearing today with figures like Trump 
it's something that I would like to compare, and we both love them, with uh, today's crime fiction. You know, the figure of detective may be eccentric, but has a certain dignity, honesty, and so on. And then it already started three, four decades ago that detective can be an imbecile, crippled, whatever. But he still retains all his power to solve crimes. And uh, the paradox is uh, this one, uh, that uh, you are no longer castrated, castrated in the sense of uh, renouncing your dirty private side so that you can exert power as the figure of dignity. You can bring out all your personal dirt. And paradoxically, this not only does not limit your power, but even strengthens it. You know, this is for me a symptom of where we missed what Trump is about. Maybe you remember years ago when he was still a candidate, how often liberal media said when he did some obscenity publicly, like that terrifying, uh, humiliating for me in an interview where he was talking to a friend of him, you can grab them by their pee organ and so on. And people thought again and again, uh, he's finished, now he went too far. No. We swallow everything. Did you follow the last affair when <coughs> one of his critics, an FBI agent, I don't know how, but her phone conversation with her lover became public where there are some erotic scenes and in a big public meeting with his supporters, you can find it immediately on YouTube, Trump imitated her as if she is having an orgasm and so on. She can, it's, 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 uh, so again, I want to point out this paradox, which is, I think, a new phenomenon. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to pay the price of castration. Castration in the sense of accepting the gap of your miserable personality and your public image. Your ideal image. You can directly enact your vulgarities and this does not make you just another ordinary guy. This even strengthens your power. Like, it's not, you know, I'm a stupid vulgar guy like you, so you shouldn't take me seriously. No, it strengthens your power. You can, much more than the traditional master, uh, uh, you, can, you, can do, uh, you can do whatever, you can do whatever you want. It's something, I think, again, quite unique, this open display of, open display of obscenity, which is, we don't have time to go into it, but which is the opposite of the Stalinist attitude, which still survives in China, where the dignity of the leader is absolutely untouchable. That's what I retroactively almost find sympathetic in Stalinism, you know, they were obsessed by the idea that if some small private vice becomes public, like, can you imagine Stalin telling a dirty joke or having a vulgar moment? It's as if they believed in the power of appearance. And the Chinese are the same today. I read somewhere that the members of the Politburo, 
have to be dressed in the same way and have to have their hair colored so that you don't see that they are old, gray, and so on. But this is what's happening today. It's again something, something incredible. You know, a king has to have his or her, if she is a queen, uh, insignia. But today you can say, I don't need insignia, I'm a vulgar guy like you, but nonetheless my power is even greater. I even don't, I'm not sure that I, that I understand this mechanism. I only think, that's my very evil hypothesis, that it's somehow connected with the 60s, student revolution and so on. I think this is maybe the biggest ideological success, maybe, in modern history. How? And I know, as a very young guy, I was there. How all the big demands of 68 were reappropriated by the newly reinvented establishment. One big demand was we no longer need these bureaucratic universities alienated. Now you don't get them, but you get precariousness, you have to study all the time, and now I have quite a nostalgia for good old authoritarian alienated universities. Then, uh, then uh, for example, companies. Now you no longer get this old bureaucratic authoritarianism. I don't know how it is with you, but in many cases I know today's bosses don't even want to be called bosses. They like Masters, more, manage, more neutral expressions, like coordinators, that's what it sounds, more neutral, but they, if anything, they have even more authority than them. And it's the same with, we will go later to this, it's the same with sexuality, I claim. At that point, the big enemy was uh, um, patriarchal, patriarchal, traditional, heterosexual marriage. Now, uh, where are we today now? I think, a radical thesis, I don't have time to go into it, that sexuality is basically the way we knew it disappearing. It becomes an instant gratification. Passionate love is, many psychiatrists accept this. I will tell you an anecdote which I like. Uh, in Argentina they told me that 40, 50 years ago, when you were cheating your wife or husband, it was considered a symptom to be analyzed. You know, like, oh my God, do you have some phobic element? Why do you always have this compulsion to jump from one man or woman to another? Uh, today, it's the opposite, literally. If you are faithful to one partner, oh, it's a traumatic fixation, what went wrong with your Oedipus complex, and so on. And that's why we like so much this marriage or dating counseling. We no longer, I've written a lot, maybe some of you know, we no longer want uh, to fall in love. I was told this morning, it's beautiful that you in Swedish, you also have the verb, you use it, like in Tombé, L'Amour in French or in English, you use the verb fall. What I like about love is to fall in love. It means you fall into it, it's a shock. And true love, I think, it's not this Buddhist stuff of I love all, all the universe, even the lowest worm. No, love means, now I want to point at the void so that I will not accuse of harassing everybody, anybody. <laughs> I love you, which means fuck off all that is around. I, I like this. 
egotist, passionate aspect of love. And this is more and more uh, considered suspicious, uh, metaphysical, or whatever. Here I, we are good friends personally. But here, now my provocations begin. You will hear many of them. Here I have a problem with my good friend Judith Butler. She still attacks very much uh, this patriarchal hegemony. And, but my reproach to her is this model of sexuality that she is proposing. There are no fixed sexual identities. We just, uh, in playful, performative procedures, we are reconstructing ourselves, uh, playfully adopting new attitudes. My problem with her is only... She is simply describing the predominant mode of subjectivity today. I, I don't see subver subversiveness anywhere there. Now, it's okay, your yeah, question yes, again. I, I, do, I hope you noticed that we had a thorough script written down, and this is the only way to improvise. Absolutely, the, yeah. So I want to go back to the script. Uh, <laughs> and... Um, back to the, the question of obscene masters, yeah. because as far as I could tell, the, your thesis is that, in a way, uh, the, the private dimension of a personal, person's life is now coming, entering mm. the public space. But what we are witnessing, on the other hand, is that the field of sexuality is being more and more controlled. Uh, would you uh, agree with that? I mean... That this is a sort of a paradox we are uh, seeing today. Yes, this is the other side, because I mean, of the phenomenon I was describing, this is for me our tragic predicament today. You have this new obscenity appropriated by alt right, means not old but alternative right, and then almost the predominant leftist answer is this political correct obsession with, you know, a good politically correct guy feels guilty. They love to feel guilty all the time. My God, I used that expression with my black or Arab friend. Did I somewhere commit, was it racist, and so on and so on. With, uh, concerning racism, let me tell you a wonderful, crazy story. My solution is that the only way to really beat racism is to universalize it and apply it to ourselves. I like racist stories, but I'm not a racist, but it's wonderful to take racism at its extreme when it becomes absolutely ridiculous. Here comes a story. A friend of mine told me that his wife had a friend, an old lady, who is absolutely a racist. But such a crazy racist. Like, this old lady told my, fr my friend's wife that she loves to eat fishes, but she no longer can eat them. And... She was asked, why not? She said, because now there are many refugees from Africa crossing the Mediterranean, and uh, most of them are black, and uh, many of them drown and are eaten by fishes. And most of our fishes come from Mediterranean. So she said, I hate black people, I don't want to eat them. And I cannot be sure that maybe some parts of them are not. You see... We should playfully, I claim, accept this. It's so crazy that it self-destroys itself. But okay, let me go on with more serious stuff. Now comes the theoretical part. Uh, 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 you know what I find sad about 
I totally support in its goals, of course, political correctness, me too, and so on and so on. Uh, what I find problematic is that they like to emphasize that. Don't refer to psychoanalysis, Freud is outdated, and so on and so on. But I think that what too many of them are effectively doing is repressing Freud's basic insight. That of a split or divided subject and that of the unconscious. The fact is that people in general don't know what they want and don't want what they desire. This is why, like to provoke you a little bit, this is why one of the big politically correct uh, mottos to insist on explicit free consent before every, ahead of every sexual act. Of course, it should be done. I'm not crazy I'm not for rape. I'm not opposed to it. But uh, I think we should be aware that of all the ambiguities that come with it. Do you know, incidentally, that they were now punished for this by all those bushfires and so on? New South Wales in Australia, as a state, enacted this, a friend told me. It's you are legally obliged to somehow register your uh, content. But I claim that if there is violence in sexuality, uh, uh, you will not prevent it in this way. Because, again, sexuality for me is constitutively the domain of fictions, of ambiguities, and uh, everything can be, for this reason, uh, 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 perverted, used against. For example, I will tell you a story which really depressed me. Uh, one of the politically correct rules is at any point in sexual interplay, all of the partners, both of the partners, had the right to say, sorry, I no longer want to do it, I'm stepping out. Okay. I'm sorry to tell you, I know women and men who use this in an extremely brutal way as the further means of humiliation. Like an ex-friend of mine, who is for this reason no longer a friend of mine, likes to seduce a woman and when she is totally excited in it, he says, oh, sorry, I no longer feel it, and so on and so on. So, you know, that's the, that's the reality of sexuality. Don't fall into this trap that sexuality is in itself domain of gentle, being a gentle activity, being nice to each other, and just external relations of power corrupted. If there is a lesson from Freud, is that sexuality is in itself permitted by power plays, uh, 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 sadomasochism, and so on and so on. Let me develop this by a beautiful example that I found in media. Uh, in The Guardian, in a, a recent comment there, Eve Weissman mentioned a, a moment in The Butterfly Effect, uh, 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 John Ronson's podcast series, about the aftershocks of internet pornography. In this podcast, you see on the set of a hardcore porn film, an actor loses his erection in the middle of, male actor, in the middle of the scene, and to get the erection back, he turns away from 
the naked woman in front of him and uh, grab his phone and search for searches for Pornhub and so on. I think this scene is the reality of uh, 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 the reality of our uh, sexuality. Uh, the lesson of psychoanalysis is precisely this: something is rotten in the state of sex. Human sexuality is in itself perverted, exposed to sado masochism. Even when I am alone with my partner, my Sexual interaction with him or her is inextricably intertwined with my fantasies. Every sexual interaction is potentially structured like masturbation with a real partner. Uh, so uh, I think that this, the scene that so horrified this journalist, my God, you have a naked woman there, the thing itself, and you lose interest and you go... That's how, this exactly is how our everyday sexuality is structured, I claim. So we cannot reduce this gap between bodily reality of my partner and the universe of fantasy. We cannot reduce it to a distortion opened up by patriarchy and social domination or exploitation. The gap is here from the very beginning. So I quite understand the actor who, in order to regain erection, searched Pornhub. He was looking for a phantasmatic support of his performance. It is for this reason that, as part of the sexual intercourse, one partner asks the other to go on talking. I was never doing it, at least I heard that many lovers one partner demands, please, while we are doing it, say some, go on talking, something dirty, obscenities, and so on and so on. It's again the recognition that the body itself is not enough. You need a fantasy support. Did you see one of the absolutely greatest films, I claim, uh, 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 this negative dystopia, comical dystopia, Terry Gilliam's Brazil? where they go to a group in a future totalitarian society to a restaurant and you order food and then what you get is on a plate something that looks like a piece of shit, like a, a, a cake of mud and above it a photo of what this really is, a beautiful steak and so on and so on. That's our reality. We never just have, as it were, uh, we never just have uh, uh, the thing, uh, we never just have the thing itself. That's why if you ask me, okay, but I will skip this not to lose too much time. Uh, the one whom I admire, do you have them here in Sweden? Um, what in the United States they call incels, involuntary celibaters. Guys who openly accept that they are ugly, that they will not be able to find partners, and so on and so on. I think this is our... They, they bring out some deep truth about sexuality. We are all incels dreaming about whatever... whatever dreaming about uh, whatever means. Another thing that I want to very briefly emphasize here is that not only is sexuality not something innocent in itself, just spoiled by power relations and so on and so on, often what I find even in a certain type of feminism, 
Never forget that in the United States, most of the feminists supported attack on Iraq to liberate Iraqi women. Now, the result is that women are there oppressed more than ever, much more than under Saddam. But what I want to say is that uh, you have also the opposite idea that it's not so much power relations, relations of domination, exploitation, that we should worry about, but we have also uh, power relations which are good, but the problem is when they get sexualized. For example, at universities, people get disturbed when a powerful professor engages in sex with one of his students. I'm also opposed to it. But nonetheless, I don't like the implication that as long as the professor is just exerting all his authority, it's okay. Power is okay as long as it doesn't get personal. So I don't like, for example, the type of feminism where you are not bothered by power relations, that less we women also want a proper percentage in it, no? A comical version of this happened in Slovenia, my country after independence, where a leftist government uh, organized a group for women's rights and the leader of that government office set as her first goal to organize a golf contest exclusive for women. Remember that golf was at that point the sport of the ruling nomenclatura. I didn't like this because, you know, like, uh, it's, the logic was clear. I'm, I don't care if the same power relations remain, just I want my part of it. Uh, no, it's again your turn, it says here. Yeah. I want to be spontaneously interrupted, please, yes. <laughs> um. Well, I wanted to go off script here, but oh I'll, uh, no, no, no. Get a heart attack. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll save some questions for the end. Okay. Uh, so let's go on as uh, we planned. Um, the last thing you mentioned, the the class uh, struggle, the the rules of the wealthy, uh, brings us to this um, topic of uh, class division and so on. And I uh, remember that. A lot of leftist theoreticians are considering the flow of immigrants as the new workforce or the new proletarian class that is going to be the base of new leftist revolution. So I wanted to, to ask you, how do you see the, um, in, on which side of the class divide do you see the, the immigrants? Is it Look, I will not fake and say, my God, I'm surprised by this question. <laughs> but I think it's a proper question because I think we should not, in a patronizing way, this is the most subtle form of racism, to patronize immigrants as poor, innocent people and so on and so on. My ultimate example here is I spoke with a couple of you yesterday evening and this morning and I was told by many of you that you like this movie uh, uh, Parasite, the South Korean one. I think it's an excellent film because you know it demystifies the poor. 
the poor who live in the basement or what, they are not portrayed as nice people with a heart. No, the nice people with good heart kind are the richer one up there. Why? Because I think it's somebody says in the film, you know, when you are rich enough, you can afford to be nice and so on. You know, so I think, again, the worst kind of uh, patronizing is for me this portrayal. No, poor people are often brutal and so on, because, my God, that's how they survive and so on. The solution is not to idealize them. They are really nice people and so on. The solution is to change the circumstances which made them like that. And here also... This is how I would reply to a complaint with many of many me, 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 men who claim I support feminism, I'm for women, but nonetheless I feel sometimes brutally manipulated by women. Of course, they are really subordinated. They have the right to do it. That's the way for them to fight. What do you think if you are a man that we oppressed women, but they should be these nice, angelic beings? They have the right to be brutal often, to fight, to fight back. So, to immigrants, so that I don't lose my... Uh, first... As uh, I define myself as this materialist Christian, <laughs> uh, I would like to return to Freud, which in a who in a very nice way problematized this uh, Christian motto, not in the sense that he was opposed to it, but how problematic it is, love your neighbor as yourself. Because, you know, for Freud and Jacques Lacan later, neighbor is the opposite to your fellow men. Neighbor is precisely, you know what would be for me the best definition of a neighbor? You have a friend and you think you know him. But then, did it happen to you? It's a very interesting experience. All of a sudden, you discover that this, this friend of yours does something. It can be ethically great, it can be a dirty obscenity that shatters your image of him. You discover that there is an abyss in him or her. My God, that's, I didn't know him at all, and so on. And that's the neighbor. The neighbor is the one who is close to you, but nonetheless has this abyss of radical otherness, which is why Freud emphasized that to love your neighbor is practically an impossible demand. You have to work hard from it. It's not just they are like us. I never liked this approach to immigrants. They are good people like us. No. What do I know? But that's the difficult thing to you. What if they are not quite like us? Ah, then you don't love them or what? The difficult thing is to, to respect them, love them as, as the otherness that they are, as neighbors. And I think the neoconservative strategy, first it was done by, first, I think the first one to put it was Margaret Thatcher and then all other neoconservative politicians took it over, is to normalize or reduce love for the neighbor, in this case for immigrants, to this nor normal love. Like, let's love them, but not too much. Let's not forget that we created our wealth. We should first take care of ourselves, and then uh, maybe... 
maybe we can uh, we can give something to others. But this kind of normalization, no. I think the problem we have with immigrants is uh, much more is uh, is a much more radical radical one. They are in some sense the real other. We cannot simply swallow them all. We are all big, one big humanity and so on and so on. <coughs> so, uh, uh, what, I want to, uh, uh, what I want to say here, now this may be problematic to some of you, that's my problem with humanitarianism. Of course I'm for it helping the immigrants absolutely unconditionally. But I don't think this is enough. A true leftist must say that I always have a suspicion that if you reduce the problem of immigrants to, oh, they are knocking on our door, let's be kind to them, it's like, let's give them some cramps so that we can continue to live in the society which we are, and we don't have to change the global society in such a way that they will no longer be refugees, and so on and so on. That's the, that's the true, that's the true uh, problem. So, uh, uh, I think that that's why I find problematic the notion developed by my good friend Alain Badiou uh, of uh, immigrants as the ultimate proletarians. He calls them nomadic proletarians as the figure of which will maybe move our society towards a new revolution or whatever. I think this is uh, too simple notion. I think that uh, the situation is much more, much more uh, tragic. I doubt if this last wave of immigrants, if it will be possible simply to integrate them and to avoid a misunderstanding. I don't blame, uh, I don't blame them. I think that position of refugees is ultimately much more is ultimately much more tragic. They are caught in a kind of social limbo. It's not that they are exploited proletarians. Many of them would precisely like to become this, but cannot become. I remember a provocative interview when they were waiting on in Me on Mexican side of the border, one of those poor, desperate refugees from Guatemala, he was saying that, uh, uh, that please, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Trump, allow us in. We just want to be good workers, uh, earning our modest salary, and so on and so on. So, but this precisely, I think, uh, their predicament is, will not happen. Their predicament is much more tragic. I think that they are the true neighbors of our situation. They are a part of society which precisely functions as, I use this term provocatively, as correlative to surplus value, mervert of Marx, surplus humanity. Something that in the present social international order, we will not be able to integrate. So, of course, I am for helping them in all ways and so on. But please never forget that 
The solution is not indeed that all the poor for, from third world countries will come to our countries. The solution is, it may sound utopian, but that's the only solution, to change the entire international global order. So, because even with, uh, so that they will no longer be forced to, to leave their country. Because also you shouldn't forget that most of those who are coming to us, that's the most tragic thing that we don't read a lot, I think, in our media, at least not in my country, in the United States, where I spent a lot of time. Many of these refugees who come to us are not the truly weak one. Because I don't know if you know, but immigration is big business in southeastern Europe. It turns around about 10 billion uh, euros per year. You have to pay to be smuggled and so on and so on. The truly poor and destitute uh, remain there. So again, I think that uh, the I think that the situation is. Uh, very serious, and that the solution is not simply they are the proletarians. If they were to be our proletarians, the problem would have been solved in some sense. Precisely, I think this formula way that, that worked in the 60s and 70s, I think, when you Sweden also, and especially Germany, got from my own ex-sphere, Balkan and so on, million to million of immigrants. It worked then, it will not work here. Again, I want to be surprised by you the last time. <laughs> okay, uh, I think you opened up an important question because politics today is becoming more and more uh, the question of morality, of if we are good individuals and so on, and I find this problematic. But let's save this question and problem for the ending and uh, linger a bit longer with the question of immigrants and especially the question of racism, which is tightly connected to it. So there is certainly, you touched upon this great problem, but I wanted to ask you, how do you see the uh, everyday racism, racism expressed on everyday level by let's say, normal, average people? It, uh, again, I'm not surprised by it, but I think this is a crucial question. Because you know, one thing is to speculate about, and we all agree, big causes of racism, international uh, constellation, uh, global geopolitics, and so on. But what also fascinated me is how everyday racism functions. It's usually some... What in my psychonetic jargon I would have called surplus enjoyment, some tiny feature that disturbs you. I remember the most sacred object, my own mother. Maybe you know the story if you read some of my work. I write about it somewhere. My mother had an old Jewish lady with whom she was good friend. And uh, once they had some business and then the Jewish lady left and my mother turned to me and said, you know, this is a wonderful lady, friend, but did you notice the strange, intense way she was counting money and so on? <laughs> it's, I think structurally this was the same moment as the one in all those wonderful paranoiac movies like Invasion of the Body Snatcher, you know, where aliens are among us 
And there is some tiny features. They have too much skin here or a strange glow in their eyes that you recognize that they are really aliens. This counting money too intensely was my mother's identifying feature that that lady may appear like one of us, but it's really a Jewish alien, and so on, you know. And uh, everyday racism, especially in our liberal societies, is always like this. No, okay, there are neo, the new right, but many of my liberal friends have this more complex attitude. I love them, the other, Jews, Arabs, Palestinians, blacks, whoever, but, and then comes a but, one, and it's interesting, it would be nice to make a list of these buts, what bothers you. One standard accuse of my racist, subtly racist friends is their food smells bad. I just cannot stand that. I love them, but their wo- then their music is too loud. This was the standard complaint of white liberals anti-racist, of course, in the United States. Yes, we should help blacks only if they would not be carrying those big radio boxes. <laughs> you know, uh, this is what uh, bothers you. But now comes my more problematic point. I don't think that we should hear... Uh, uh, shift the accent to too quickly culpabilizing ordinary people. For example, recently I followed a debate in the United States where a white woman was, that was the problem, walking on the street and she somehow, I don't know how, did she turn around or what, noticed that there is a big strong black guy walking behind her a couple of steps, and she automatically grabbed her purse more strong. And the black guy complained this was an act of racism. Yes, I agree, but I think it's... it's uh, but I think it's uh, too simply to just... Uh, too, it's too simple to just blame her, you know. To claim she's a racist and so on and so on and so on. Uh, uh, because uh, maybe that was her experience. Not that she was robbed by black people, but the society she lives in and so on and so on. And what if she then comes with statistics claiming, yes, many robberies are made by black people and so on and so on. So uh, I, I'm always distressed when something that's part a systemic problem is turned into a moral problem for moral problem for individuals. Okay, that woman was afraid. What should she do? Should she reason like, oh my God, yes, we whites oppress black people, so please come and rob me. We are guilty and so on. And I think that we shouldn't reason at this level, but precisely, to put it in very naive Marxist terms, we should ask, but why are many black people so uh, excluded that the only way for them is to steal a little bit? And the problem is there. What is pushing eventually, uh, what is uh, pushing black people uh, 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 towards this? How to change things at this level? You know, because you know what really worries me? Uh, 
uh, okay, I will give you another example to provoke you. I have in my next book all the data about it. Something beautiful happened, beautiful in the horrible sense for me always, uh, at an American rich campus. Uh, there was a swimming pool. Student girls were there in their bikini swimming, and next to the swimming pool was a building where the facade was being remade, of course, by half-illegal Mexican workers. And Mexican workers behaved a little bit, not aggressively, but nonetheless like male chauvinists and were throwing at women this kind of uh, no threat, but this kind of uh, uh, erotic sexist remarks. And the women complained that they felt threatened, And then, instead of confronting the problem, you can imagine what the university authorities did. They built under plastic a special tunnel to that building and made a big plastic wall to separate totally the two groups. And then there was an entire conflict because the the ladies claimed we were victims of male aggressivity. The men claimed, no, it's class distinction. That these were rich ladies, we were too low for them, and so on. So I think that uh, the sad lesson that I take from it, especially in the United States, where uh, many upper-middle-class feminists, they don't say it, but implicitly, when they talk about male chauvinism, it has this subtle class and race dimension. You know, it's mostly Mexicans and so on who do this and so on and so on. And to conclude, so that we don't lose time, you know, what is for me the worst kind of race, racism? I say this to provoke you. This uh, patronizing celebration of the other. We in relatively affluent Western white societies, we like authentic others. You know, the others who are not corrupted the way we are. I remember when I was young, I, some, a friend from South Africa gave me a brochure, it was still apartheid, South African brochure uh, defending apartheid. And the reasoning was in a perverted way very multicultural. It was, but if we just introduce democracy in South Africa, you know all those beautiful black minorities, Hottentot, Bushman, all these wonderful cultures will be drowned into our Western corruption. The most subtle racism today is not direct racism of you are less. No, it's you are more. We may be rich, but you, sorry, not you, you, let's say you are some Minority, but you live much more authentic, holistic life, and so on and so on. I have some Native American, I don't like the name. I prefer to call them Indian, and all my Indian friends prefer this name. They are intelligent, my friends there. They claim the term uh, Native American is more racist. You know what was the reasoning? I'm sorry if I repeat myself, maybe you know it. They told me... Native Americans evokes the opposition nature culture. So we are nature, what are you? Cultured Americans, or what? White people. And he told me, we much prefer to be called 
Indians, at least our name is a monument to white men's stupidity. You know, who thought they were in India and so on. What I admire, this, my Native American friends, they hate these white liberals who come there. Okay, uh, uh, we, you live your authentic life. Their message was, they told me, okay, then let's exchange our roles. Give me your uh, L.A., Los Angeles, suburb, villa, and you come to live in our city, wooden house there, and so on. You know, what I, I really, this is the most hated, this white attitude of this underprivileged group have some kind of uh, deeper holistic authenticity, and so on, and so on, and so on. All... The minorities I know, and that's where I love them. No, they really want to succeed on our terms in our society. To conclude my favorite example, I was once in, in, uh, in New Zealand, and I uh, encountered some Maori painters, and first... Before they knew who I am, they gave me all that bullshit, you know. You white people uh, manipulate nature and so on, while we, before we paint a mountain, we listen to the mountain, we ask the mountain for permission to paint it, all that stuff. Then, when I become friendly with them, they told me that nonetheless they have an agent in New York who tells them what is the latest fashion, no? And then they take good care that the mountain is, tells them this. At that point, the fashion was uh, old sacred objects in ruins and some naked body, usually women among them. So this is what they were doing, and I think this wasn't a manipulation. Did you see, sorry, I improvise a little bit to the end. Did you see, that was the biggest lesson against racism that I heard. Did you see an excellent Inuit, to use the old term that now it's abandoned, Eskimo, film uh, 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 Fast Runner, a Canadian Inuit film. It tells an old story, an old Inuit legend, conflict between two groups in a tribe, but it changes the story. In the old myth, it's a total catastrophe. Uh, the tribe is destroyed, they kill each other. In the film version, they just threw out, not kill, just threw out two evil members, and it's a... Uh, in some sense, happy ending. And then a stupid white liberal attacked the film that it's not faithful to the old legend, but it makes a Hollywood compromise, happy ending, and so on and so on. And the director of the film, an Inuit, who unfortunately was dying of cancer, gave him the perfect answer. He told him, no, you are a racist here. Because he told him, this obsession with authentic culture and so on is your Western notion. He said, it's our Inuit tradition that you retell myths, ancient myths, always in a different way, appropriating it to a present situation, and so on and so on. They don't have this myth of authenticity. So, and incidentally, now really to conclude, it's the same with uh, a similar way my problem with deep ecology. I even find the term Anthropocene a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, 
problematic. Because, you know, some deep ecologists argue that we are just, which we are, of course, one species on this earth, and we expanded too much, we should uh, reduce ourselves to accept that we are just one of the species, be more modest, be aware that we are part of nature, and so on and so on. I think that this position against anthropocentrism is really the most brutally anthropocentric. When we are saying we are uh, for, uh, we want to be part of natural inhabitat, what we really mean is so that we can survive, a natural habitat which will be ideal for us. I think, to provoke you to end, the only true ecology today is to say Maybe Earth is our mother, but this mother is a dirty bitch, evil one. Just think about how many... Earth is a permanent catastrophe. How did we get coal and oil? Can you imagine what ecological catastrophes must have happened? I think that's why I think uh, our ecological predicament is much more serious than it may appear. There is no natural balance to which we can return. The situation is much more dangerous. I don't believe in simple solutions. We are often in ecology thinking in magical terms. Like, you know, the use of these temperatures. Like, if temperatures rise for 1.5 Celsius, it's still okay. If they rise 2 degrees Celsius or more, it's a catastrophe. How do we know this? The situation is confused. We... And this is not the reason to say, okay, it doesn't matter, we can't do anything. No. The, the problem today, I think, and I take ecology extremely seriously, but the problem is that uh, that's why we should also avoid this morbid fascination. People, especially in developed Western countries, like to have these dark scenarios. We are already lost catastrophes approaching, and so on, and so on. Did you notice how everybody today almost is a catastrophist? Right-wingers claim that leftists are catastrophists. Right-wingers like to claim that leftists lose the hope in political revolution, so they have to invent new uh, catastrophic threats, like ecology, threat of nature, like, uh, like new forms of almost fascism, racism in the West, and so on. But did you notice that the right-wingers have their own catastrophes, catastrophic scenarios? One is immigrants, they are here to ruin our civilization, and so on. The other is uh, anti-LGBT, and so on, you know. The idea is, I love this uh, paranoiac theory, that... Uh, Critical theory, today's feminism, were invented by communists when they failed in the 20s. They discovered that they failed because we Western people were still too deeply embedded in Christian culture. So our society should be undermined from within, our Christian morality ruined, and that's happening today, according. But so it's interesting, this predominance of uh, catastrophic uh, catastrophic reasoning. And I simply claim that this morbid fascination with the catastrophe is dangerous, not because the situation is really better, but because the situation is uh, uh, much more open. Who knows where we are? 
I, I think that, again, the situation is much more serious. We live in a time of uncertainty. But I got lost in this improvisation, so please uh, say some deep concluding thought. <laughs> I will not uh, give a concluding thought, but I would like you to contemplate on a thing which I think is the center of your uh, mm -hmm. talk here today. I think that what we are circling around when talking about social inequality or class struggle, ecology, racism, is the fact that uh, maybe the, the greatest maneuver of conservative politics was to, um, to place all these problems or um, frame all these problems as moral problems, problems of good or bad personality. Racism is conceived as a problem of individuals who are racist and not as a systemic problem, which it is. Or uh, the problem of immigrants is the question of are we charitable enough and so on, not a systemic question of mm. how to mm. accept, um, I don't know, a mass of newcomers and so on. So I, I want you to reflect a little bit on this shift of politics from politics in uh, proper... Um, proper um, meaning as dealing with political problems and then shifting blame to individuals for being, I don't know, too racist or not recycling enough and therefore causing the ecological catastrophe. When did this happen? I again think, maybe I'm too fanatical here, that it has something to do with 68 and aftermath and the true victim of 68 rebellion was the left. The left moved to the cultural domain. It became the cultural left. And I think Trump is a revenge for this ultimately. It's Trump who won because he, as a right-winger, mobilized some, per as all good proto-fascists do, some form of class struggle. But yes, I totally agree with you. You know where? Because... Ecology is now, I claim, one of the model domains of ideology today. We have four or five forms of how the ruling ideology appropriates ecology. First is Donald Trump, the simple denial, there is no global warming, blah, blah, blah. Then you have the capitalist solution. Market can do it, just tax the polluters and so on. Then there is the naive uh, scientific solution. Don't worry too much. Science will invent new forms of energy, whatever. Everything will be okay. Then we have this deep ecological point, uh, Mother Earth, and we, and we offended her, so return to some old conservative local community type of reasoning. I'm very skeptical there, because you know, many bad things happened with modernity, but it's good to remind yourself, ourselves, of pre-modern ecological catastrophes. Like when I was in Iceland a couple of years ago, it was explained to me that, you know that, before Norwegians moved there, I think around 8th century, I don't know exactly when, Iceland was totally forested. So, catastrophe already happened there, but now I come to what you mentioned. The most disgusting form of ideology today is this uh, moral blackmail. Like the true speech of power today is 
when you criticize, blame state politics, big companies for ecological trouble is. But who are you to talk about this? What did you do? Did you recycle all Coca-Cola bottles? Did you put all paper aside and so on? It's wonderful operation because the system makes you responsible, like don't criticize, look at you, and is at the same time giving you, providing you an easy way out. You know, like, recycle all your bottles or whatever and so on, and you did your duty. And I'm sorry if some of you know this story, I like to repeat it. That's why the almost ideal company for me today, ecologically, is, uh, I hope you don't have them here, it's Starbucks. I remember years ago, at every Starbucks place, they had posters like, uh, our cappuccino is more expensive, but... 1% of it goes to save some Guatemala children or whatever, and so on and so on. I found this a wonderful operation. The message is uh, that consumerism and ecology, being an ecologist, are no longer uh, opposed because we sell you commodities where your duty towards society and Nature is already included in the price, you know. The price is a little higher, you did your duty and so on. And that's why a serious ecological approach for me is to precisely look at uh, how much of what we are doing to be ecologically aware is really a form of ideology. An American friend of mine, I think it was Dean McKennell, who does also sociology of tourism from San Francisco, uh, investigated this, for example. You know, when you go to a store, you get all those genetically modified, beautiful apples. You leave them one week on a sun, they remain the same. And then you get those half-rotten apples, which cost twice the price, but are organically grown. And he discovered that he made some uh, opinion polls, uh, interviewed people, that the majority of people don't really believe in this. But they are nonetheless buying this apple because, as they put it, it made them feel, it makes them feel good. You know, like, oh my God, I bought organic apples, which means I did something from for Mother Earth, I showed my solidarity, and so on, and so on. Here, ideology is at work. So, I think, again, that against those who claim the end of, uh, uh, the end of ideology, and so on, if ever we lived in an ideological time, it's today's ideological time. Just to conclude this reflection, I think that the threat to freedom is maybe today greater than ever. Why? Because these new modes of control that we are getting today, digital control and so on, we no longer even experience it as control. We are, did you read the book? It's maybe a little bit simplified, but you learn a lot. That big bestseller, uh, what's her name? Zuboff, uh, that, uh, uh, surveillance capitalism, no? You know what? <laughs> Like in good old days of normal totalitarianism, the control was visible. You looked back, you saw a guy, oh my God, is he a policeman following me? Today, you don't see anything. You sit behind a computer, you watch hardcore porn, you whatever, you buy things, you surf around, everything is registered. 
This is the most dangerous and freedom because you experience it as the utmost freedom. This is what we should be afraid of. And, uh, and to go to the end, if you ask me what is the true game changer, it's, I, I've just finished a book on it. It will appear this summer. It's uh, what the popular term is Neuralink by uh, Elon Musk or the wired brain. The idea of a direct connection between, we are far from that, but not as far as you think. The direct link with our brain and computer. It sounds wonderful. You think about something, it has consequences in reality. And of course, when official media present you this, you hear only good side of the story. Like, isn't it wonderful? A guy who is totally crippled can move his uh, wheelchair just by thinking and so on. Yes, but don't forget that if it goes out, it also goes in. And I don't like to blame China for everything. It's now so fashionable to focus on China. But one should read what happens in China, because there in China, uh, they are just doing more openly what our secret services and so on are already doing. Namely, was it in your media, this wonderful, again, in my sense, wonderful, terrifying news, in some elementary schools in China, it's already obligatory for children to put a kind of a metal ring on their head, which registers just the scope of their mental activity. So uh, the teacher sees on his computer screen if somebody is not following. I don't have even to look at you and so on. And things are developing so fast here. I know people who know people who know people who at the end of the train do very obscure things for secret services and so on. And they told me, forget about all those bullshit, nuclear arms and so on. The true obsession of military with all big countries, United States, Russia, uh, uh, China, is uh, mind control, this direct link. Because you know what this means? In some sense, it is a post-human era. Because what's our sense of free freedom? It's I'm here free in my thoughts. You can control me, but I think what I want. Once there is a direct link between our thoughts and some external machine, in some sense, in some sense uh, everything changes. And it's so interesting to see the genealogy of this idea. You know who was the first who did it? In 1920s, so-called, they, they had a whole new wake of Gnosticism, where the idea was that communism should change the human nature and introduce a new collective entity of humanity and so on. Even Trotsky, I have a quote, followed this line. And uh, uh, so today, this is returning with this, all this new age mythology of uh, new age mythology of uh, uh, singularity. Our minds will be brought together in direct communication in some collective mind. Uh, of course, we are far from there. But nonetheless, even if it's scientifically, I don't know, a fiction, it's a fiction which already has effects uh, today. 
So, again, I just think we live in really dangerous times. Okay. I was too long. No, you went completely off script, so now uh, I'll uh, take uh, revenge uh, and surprise you with another question. Uh, uh, what, what I want you to... What will be the we question? have a bit what? more time. Yeah, yeah, we have... I was on purpose, yeah, short, so that, yeah. I was just... <laughs> I was thinking about uh, political di correct discourse, and um, what bothers me is that I think that it uh, arises from the right questions or it arises from the real social traumas. But I think that the real effect of political correctness and these sensitivities uh, that are being encouraged today is that they, they actually prevent social bonds. So the discourse that was invented to make relations between people better is in fact now uh, preventing from uh, it's preventing social bond from happening because if you look for aggressors or um, abusers or the toxic others it's it is sort of impossible uh, to create any new relations because every other that comes uh, to your way it's potentially his he or she is potentially toxic endangering and so on so i was wondering do no, you it's nice that you mentioned this term this i feel very uneasy now because i'm sorry to tell you this was not staged in advance you know <laughs> but uh, i like the term that you mentioned Toxic, because I was opposed to it, but not as an anti-feminist, on the opposite. I think from authentic, you remember, when was it? Half a year, a year ago, when American Psychological Association introduced as a medical category the term, was it reported in your media, toxic masculinity. I was opposed to it. Not because men are not doing horrible things, but because, you know what's the danger? Aren't we doing the same thing as among others? You remember when they castrated Alan Turing and then pushed him to suicide? They medicalized half a century ago or more. It was 60 years more. They, they medicalized homosexuality as an illness. Now we are medicalizing toxic masculinity. We should fight it. But we should be aware this is not a medical phenomenon. This is a... Toxic masculinity, men being brutal and so on, whatever. It's a phenomenon, politico-ideological phenomenon. You don't fight it by pills against toxic masculinity and so on and so on. I found horrible this, uh, this medicalization. For example, it began 10 years ago, you know that horrible actor, Mel Gibson. He was caught having an anti-Semitic outburst. And then you know what was the formula? that this is an illness and he promised to take a medical cure against anti-Semitism. Uh, anti no, sorry, it's not a medical cure, my God, you know. And this is where I provoke and why many people hate me. At all levels, we should not be afraid. Even what appears to be most progressive positions, me too and so on, to have a little bit of critical skepticism. For example, me too. I sincerely admire it. I think that something extremely important is happening. The basic formula, matrix of relation between sexes 
which was operative maybe even before class societies, already in developed tribal societies, is now uh, problematized, changing. But, uh, uh, but such, but, but I have problem. I will tell you, okay, I don't want to get lost. Just one example where I am, if I like something is LGBT, but you know what I like about it? The plus. You know, the official formula is LGBT or you can go on, LGBTQ, whatever, plus. For me, the basic philosophical even problem is the status of this plus. Usually it's taken in a British, nothing against the UK, British empiricist way. The idea is we have all possible sexual identities, but we cannot ever be sure if there are not some other identities that we didn't yet admit, so we have to keep it open. Plus means you have even lists now. The state of New York, some committee, I quoted, established 33, 34 positions. Boots, bisects, trisex, two spirits, whatever and so on. But the idea is maybe it's not complete. But I would like to propose, and that's for me as an old Freudian, Lacanian, maybe the key to feminine subjectivity. What if you take plus in a much more radical sense? And you know, the idea was given to me by some, I have good connections with them, some Australian, very intelligent LGBT uh, theorists. They told me, but isn't it possible to be plus as such? What if plus is not just a placeholder for other identities? What if plus, like plus, I don't know what, a subjective position as such, which is the basic hysterical position, which is the basic, uh, wait a minute, I'm a good Freudian. For me, hysteria is the true subversivity. I'm, when I was young, uh, participating a little bit in 68 events, one of the main chauvinist tricks of them was hysteria was considered they didn't say it like this, but it was that one. Soft, feminine, you know. You just question the master, you don't really want... Perverts were considered radical. They go to the end and so on. No, I think perversion is a position which must be behind every authoritarian power. Perversion is part of power. Hysteria is critique of ideology at its most elementary. You know, even at everyday level, Sorry for this, but I don't mean it in a male chauvinist way. I love this woman's question. You say you love me, but why do you love me? It's a question which has no answer, you know. Because the moment you answer it, because of your hair, funny talk, whatever, it's not love. So, uh, but uh, this is the nature of subjectivity. I am a subject insofar as I am a plus, which means I cannot identify myself with a firm objective position, perverts can do it. The clinical definition of a pervert is the one who knows what the big other ideological agency wants from he who is an instrument of it. So, uh, 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 this is why I think that it fascinates me the struggles which are going on in LGBT uh, community and so on and so on. Very interesting things. It's really happening there. But again, what I don't trust is this 
popular in some feminist or rather transgender circles, this idea of the big binary, masculine, feminist, oppressive, patriarchal, if we just open up the space for enough identities instead of 235, then everything will be, they don't say it, but they imply it, okay, we will, everybody will find his, her, their, whatever, identity, and there will be just loving, blah, blah, blah. I think that, no, what if sexuality always implies a plus? In the sense that, what if in the impossibility to identify is a constitutive part of human subjectivity? And that would be, for me, uh, a really great breakthrough, and so on. Sorry, I got lost. Okay, you bit. didn't answer, answer my question, so well, <laughs> I'm going to try and get terrorist, you... Terrorist, <laughs> intellectual to terrorist. ...to answer in, yeah. in another way, and we, we should wrap it up uh, slowly. Uh, slowly, yes, yeah, because... I, I'm returning uh, to the beginning of your lecture at the question of obscene masters, and I'm trying to combine this with the question of political... Uh, correct discourse which is very attentive to all kinds of possible potential aggressions and I'm just thinking, do you think that the way to overcome these predicaments in politics and maybe even in the prevailing discourse is to return to some kind of basic, I don't know, kindness, politeness to accept the, you know, the public appearance of generosity and so on. Do you find that... I would almost say this may surprise you because I'm, some idiot even called me, I'm Trump of the left, full of <laughs> the same obscenities. But I'm tempted to say, yes, what I admired about politicians like, I know they are basically good old social democrats, but don't underestimate Bernie Sanders and Corbyn. Look, at least they moved things. You know, there was some kind of mass mobilization. Is that, as I already said, apropos the opposition between Trump and Bernie Sanders, yes, I think we, the left, should shamelessly adopt the stance of not we are subversive, whatever. We are the true moral majority. We stand for common decency and so on and so on. I am all for it. That's why, you know, not just because, sorry for male chauvinism, not just because she is beautiful. You know, um, Alessandria Ocasio-Cortez, the young... She did something, one, she's extremely... Her beauty shouldn't blind you for her, how bright she is. She did a month or two ago something wonderful. She supported Sanders, Bernie, by a wonderful argument. She said, I'm for him, not in spite of the fact that he is an old white man, but because of it. And then she explained it. No, it's not only old white men can lead us. Her point was a very intelligent one. Why did Trump win? Because he mobilized this also, among other things, of course. These poor, dissatisfied, half-unemployed white people and so on. And he saw it very correctly that the way for Democrats to win is to repeat from the left what Trump did from the right. It's not what Joe Biden is doing, to occupy the center, be more moderate, but to aim directly at those dissatisfied poor white people who were then seduced by Trump. 
No compromise with Trump or with any of his ideologists. But beware how Trump uh, succeeded. And she sees this very well. That this opposition, old white men versus, I don't know, young marginals, is not the right way to think. We should be together against the true postmodern obscene conservatives and so on and so on. So yes, it may appear a very naive position and don't tell me I am a utopian here because, my God, in the West, developed countries, again, they lost. They didn't yet win, maybe they will never, but of the, it's not really radical left, but a little bit more radical than mainstream left. There were only two movements, again, which really became a movement. It was, again, left of the Democratic Party, Bernie Sanders and others, and Jeremy Corbyn. And it's crucial to note how, I don't think even they were planning to do it. I know some people who know some people who are very close to Corbyn. And they told me, no, he wasn't acting this. It's simply to enact this common decency and so on and so on. And I think it would be extremely stupid to miss this opportunity to mobilize, to mobilize people, to, to play this pseudo-transgressive radical role. No, we must be obscene, subversive and so on. Sorry, but now I will return to you a low blow because being who I am, I know what you are doing and writing, no? And you did many things about, uh, wrote many things about how the extent to which today art can integrate all those obscene transgressions and so on and so on. So the, the amount to which this old-fashioned subversive transgression, dirty words, whatever, it's part of the, for example, among other things, academic, is, sorry, artistic establishment. Today, if you want to have an exhibition that would have succeeded, you have to do things. It always helps if you display a dead cow's body, if you put a statue of Jesus Christ in urine, and so on and so on. Or a banana on a wall. On end, then you sell it for 20,000 and so on, or how much. So I think that this game of who is more subversive is a deadlock. It's totally appropriated by those in power. And I would really advise the left to play the game of, sorry, we are the decent guys, and so on and so on. Okay, on this point, I'm going to stop terrorizing you. And uh, thank you for the, your talk today. I and should thank you. Why are you thanking me? <laughs> I don't sorry, know. Sorry. I'm just being polite. I, uh, that's okay. Now I'm... Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's so, a, that's a, for a moment, I was afraid that she means it seriously. And I was in a panic, you know. Uh, so thank you, Slavo, again, and thank, thank you, you all of you for coming. I, I, mean, I think I must apologize to you and to all of you. You know, since I'm for the time being, only I'm getting old, a little bit better known than you, we had to do this arrangement and so on, but I didn't like it. My nonetheless authentic, in spite of all my bad jokes, feminism, uh, did ring a bell in me. I didn't like it how you appeared here, nonetheless, as my appeal. Well, thank you so much. <laughs>
I hope, and now I will return you the blow. I hope you didn't take it seriously, no, what I said now. It was just... Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, thanks But listen, to save... Where are you, Per? To save democracy, could we at least one person ask us a question? Because we are early enough, I think. Per, where are you? Ah, a good question. I admit it. Uh, first, uh, no, no, no. I will try to give you a very precise answer. For me, I, first, I admit it. I don't have a simple formula. I'm sure it will not be the 20th century way a new Leninist party. The reason I still, as I always repeat it, that I still call myself communist is that the problems that we are facing today are the problems of commons. Nature ecology is our commons, which shouldn't be privatized, blah, blah. Uh, digital space, big battle today, is a problem of commons. How will digital space be controlled and so on? Immigrants and so on, it's again a problem of commons. To even to approach, probably, problem of these mass migrations, which will become more and more necessary, uh, uh, will be... Some type of, and that's all that communism means for me, some type of, I claim that all these problems cannot be solved within the constraints of uh, democracy the way we know it today and capitalism the way we know it today. So some kind of trans-state and outside market Collective mobilization will have to be invented. I don't know how. We have models, and although he wasn't so popular here in Sweden for well-known reasons, he made many stupid mistakes. He is, sorry, Julian Assange. But I think what he did was not only he, but Snowden and others, is something important. He was, as he told in an interview to you, a spy for the people. You know, to open a space outside state control and so on and so on. One field, ecology, what will happen? I don't know. I'm not an optimist. If you ask me, we need a more serious catastrophe. We are not yet fully awakened. I really, I, I don't have clear formulas here. And one of the reasons of my despair is that all attempts, for example, I know very well I had links there, the situation in Venezuela. Problems began already with Chavez. He experimented in all possible ways, uh, giving factories to workers and so on and so on. We don't have a model of an alternate economy. So whom I do admire there, and this was really a dirty coup d'etat against them, I'm much more modest here. My True friends, there was, I knew him personally, Morales vice president, Linera. You know why there was a coup against Morales and Linera? Not, they were not the usual story of the left. Radical left takes power, they screw it up economically and so on. They succeeded. Economy did well, more justice. That's why, that's why they were a scandal. Because they genuinely succeeded with moderate but very clear progressive agenda. Uh, Morales did ideologically something wonderful. Okay, he did all that crap, you know, some ancient Inca goddesses and so on. 
But how beautifully he connected this with actual feminism. Uh, because, you know, here also things are complex. To conclude, I'm sorry, with a wonderful...